Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join <gasps> us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash bones and bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude wow. and <laughs> entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. We're all which is, of fun. Yeah, where yes. the delightful things happen. That's where I post weirdness in the middle of the night when I have insomnia. <laughs> Same. If I am tortured, you too shall see. <laughs> I like that about you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, Morbid Makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 2, Episode 19, She Walks in Beauty Like a Fright? (laughs) (laughs) And now that's poem is going to be stuck in my head right with the song that's been stuck you in my head welcome. for two days. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, I'm Natalie from Uber Dark Designs, an official true crime creative. My pronouns are she, her. Yay! Yay! We like a good pronoun. We do. It's we like a, a well-used pronoun. Indeed. So, I, you keep lighting up things <laughs> on my screen. <laughs> All right. Oh, it's going to be one of those. It's going to be one of those. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, what's Sorry. going on? <laughs> uh, I'm tired. Um... I have this yin and yang because I'm super tired and everything's felt kind of heavy lately. Yeah. Um, You know, and I think that we are not alone in heaviness feeling. And I know that we've covered this before, but. Yeah. Dude, the world is not okay right now. (laughs) And it is okay to not be okay. That's a normal reaction. There's some completely fucked up stuff happening you know and and it's so hard to even keep track of it all um let alone process it all and figure out what you can handle processing and not processing i don't think you can keep track of it all no but it's yeah also sometimes your brain chemistry just doesn't play along like i've been in a depression cycle for at least a month i think it's lifting, Good. I think, the last couple of days. 
but I'm yeah I think mine's lifting but it's weird because I've been oddly like super productive you have um, been really productive yeah and I keep blaming it on the cold brew um something I'm I mean that'll through, do it plus I, I think I have like the opposite of seasonal I mean not I have like opposite seasonal disorder like Fall and winter are my jam. Yes. Like, I, like I love fall and winter. Summer is not. Like, I don't. No, fall maybe, is when I come alive. Right? So, so yeah. Um, so, yeah. Things are heavy a bit. And uh, just a reminder that store-bought neurons and serotonin and dopamine, whatever comes in your body. Neurotransmitters, perhaps? There you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, hormones. Anything yes. that you take that makes you happy and helps you function is absolutely okay and should be normalized. Um, Very and, okay. Right. We love them. We're big fans. Big fans. And so you have a safe space here. And I think it's been a while since we've mentioned that. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yes. Um, that is, it's always good to say because every right. time we do say something, we get a couple emails yeah. from people who some- are like, hey. Thanks Remember for doing said that. that thing? Yeah. I liked that thing. Yeah. And so you're not alone. We're here. No, you're totally and not most, alone. And odds are one, if not both of us, are off in the middle of the night. So if you reach out, we yep. may see it. <laughs> Chances are very good that you might get an immediate reaction because yeah. I hate sleeping. Yeah. And yeah, it just is. So yeah. And as a result of the heavery, I still have not released my, my Halloween and fall line. Even though, like, half of it's done, I just need to, like, photograph and all that stuff. But because my brain is not always functioning, I guess typically, uh, and never sure. is typically, but uh, the best way to... Um, I guess kickstart yourself into launching things is to go sure you want me to do this craft art artisan fair on oh two weeks less than two weeks from now sure i'll be there i have no stock i have nothing prepared but i'm like absolutely i will do that thing and now i will get all the things done because i seem to function well under pressure (laughs) oh me too Give oh. me a six-week book deadline, yes. and boy, will you get a solid product. Yeah. So I, I gave myself, un- I inadvertently gave myself a... Um, Swift kick in the pants? Yeah. So I'm excited about that to see how that all turns out. I cleared out and organized my hard drive, which was getting all cattywampus. <laughs> yeah. It's bothering me. So, yeah. That's so satisfying. It was really satisfying. And then I was like, I don't remember this, but you guys need to see this. <laughs> and you're like, we had that cock. Co- <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. So, yeah. Oh, that photo. <laughs> that photo. I was like, dude, I don't know why it's safe. I am fairly <laughs> certain that you sent that to me. Probably. Probably. Yep. Um, but yeah. it may have gone the other direction. Either way. Either way. Yeah. This is a photo that was shared in our Facebook group. That involves dolls carrying a corpse. Yeah. It's probably the best and worst uh, Halloween outdoor decor (laughs) I've ever seen. Yeah. It reminds me when I found a a 
bunch of bags of mannequins. Oh. Uh, like black trash bags filled with mannequins. And they're usually not ever mannequins, so it's a good thing they were. <laughs> you, oh, my blood ran cold when I saw them. And I was like, oh no. But I also have to go look. Because right. if I don't go look and there's someone there, right, like, right. that's going to be a problem. And so I went over completely ready to yep. see dead bodies. And, like, this is in my neighborhood, like, down the street from me. And it would have been a very weird, and it was 5.45 in the morning. Like, it was. You, I can see you calculating if you can tell if there's seepage. <laughs> I can see you, like, pre-calculating. It had like, rained. The... Oh, no. <laughs> yep. Yeah. There's yeah. a photo of them that I have somewhere that you I tell will... me that you, then you, you, you procured them for fun, because I totally <laughs> I didn't know why they were there uh, and what had happened to them, but it was just like feet sticking up <laughs> out of, ba- it was, yeah. it was a whole thing. Um, they were mannequins. Okay, good. good I was good, good. very awake after that. <laughs> and I, I do have a photo of the trash bags filled with mannequins and we're talking full human sized mannequins. We're not. We're not talking small. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you doing? What's going on with you? How's the booking doing? Uh, booking is booking. Booking that is, is booking. That is happening once again. My stitching has started for my latest book, which is good. That means I have also just purchased containers specifically to organize my already organized embroidery floss in because like you do um procrastination by organization is my drug of choice this time though you have a thimble so it'll take a while for honorary bloodshed i already bled on this (laughs) i tried (laughs) it happens the first the first project before um calluses have built up it's sort of like playing guitar yeah you're gonna bleed and you're gonna stick a blunt needle through your finger you just are yeah that fact is probably the only thing that's making me that's the only thing that occupies any part of my brain that says um, a giant uh, tufting gun may not be <laughs> But the rest of me is like, no, you need that giant tufting gun. Ask to Amazon, because they keep showing me the I mean, you shouldn't shoot it as. It's, it's like a weapon. You should yes. not point it at anything that you don't intend to shoot. Right. And right. That, that is the rule. Like, gun stops. safety... If you do not intend to shoot it, do not point your weapon at it. And so I think that that is the approach for the tufting gun. I think so but. too, but I also fully know where my, I guess, klutziness lies. And so if you ever get a middle of the night, I have tufted my foot on accident because I dropped it. Well, I fully expect <laughs> to get that text. Um, 
Well, I was telling you earlier that I have been singing West Coast mumble rap for two days straight. Just, it, I am not young enough for this, is the thing. But earlier today, I was rapping at my cats, and I happened to be over by my bedroom window, mm-hmm. and I looked up, and there's a goddamn jumping spider! Oh, like, no! Like, right in the window uh, casement. And, like, it's here, my face is right nearby, and we both freeze. And I spent a good hour, like, fully wasted time trying to get that stupid spider out the window. Oh, no. <laughs> I am, uh, I actually have my own little window spider. Um, I named her Charlotte. Is it because- a jumping spider? Because this is a zebra spider. Yeah, no, she doesn't jump, but she has some fabulous little, uh, she managed to find a couple of flies, um, mm. and she's got these, you know, little snacks for later that are all nicely balled up into little pockets. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Jumping spiders aren't, aren't my favorite. I mean, there are, we have an arrangement. Okay. A family of zebra spiders... Mm-hmm. lives in my fire escape garden. Okay. They have lived there for as long as I have had any plants out there. And as long as they don't come in, there we're go. cool. That is fair. I mean. But this one came in, and I don't know, it had, like, fangs with, like, chunky things on the end. Ooh, and I just like, what are you even doing? <laughs> I don't understand. It was not impressed with my rapping. <laughs> and then it would not go out the window. And it took me, it kept hiding because I live in an old ass building where there are, you know, lots of cracks and things because nothing was built to standard sizes. <laughs> and it just kept hiding. And so I had to hang out, like draped over the cat tree watching this fucking spider Mm. until it finally like it would get very close to the window and then I would move to open the window and it would scurry back and hide oh finally we had a come to Jesus talk in which I informed it that it was going to come to Jesus if it didn't get the fuck out of my apartment (laughs) You're being evicted. You've overstayed your welcome. Let me show you the door or window in this case. Yeah. So it hopped out after an hour of me, like, trying to steer it along with my shoe. And I couldn't, I I considered killing it, but it kept jumping at me. (laughs) And I was like, mm-hmm. All right, fine. (laughs) All right. So, anyway. And my mom just texted me. 
just right then in the middle of that. So I'm going to take that as my uh, cue to stop talking about spiders. All right. Do you want to take a quick break to thank all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon? Um, yes. Well, it's time to give a totally normal and not at all creepy welcome to our newest members, the Schmidt family and Kim. Hello, the Schmidt family and Kim. Hello and welcome. Yes, we are very, very pleased to have you in our midst. We are. Trapped in our webs, perhaps. <laughs> all right, I'm... I'm done thinking about spiders because then I'm just going to start feeling crawly things all over. And Oh, no. <clears throat> no, 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 no. I have a, 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 a phobia. <laughs> mm. Like very real, all of blood drains out of my body uh, phobia of arachnids. Then we shall change subject. Yeah. That is like the most basic phobia I could possibly have. You I mean, I be... have agoraphobia. Yeah. That's less pedestrian. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, anyway, Curiosity Shop members, you, you all, are the best. The and best. we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you. But I gotta tell you, if there are spider webs, I'm out. I will clear the way. I will. I will be your your spider defense system. Thank you. You're All welcome. right. Then I'm back in. <laughs> so if you want in on this fun, not only will you get some really great surprises that we're working on, mm-hmm. but you'll get a huge backlog of Patreon only episodes. So much. Including next week, where we talk decorative gourd season, bitches. Yow! (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where that came from. I don't know. It's (laughs) late night recording. We're gonna get to lay. Oh, I'm trying not to sing (laughs) so hard. That's not true. You're trying not to mumble rip. Okay, yes, that is true, but nobody needs to learn how to buy pot from a kid in California. Right. Nobody. They've got dispensaries. They're all fancy and stuff now. Oh, yeah. What's that kid doing even selling pot anymore? He's trying, he's trying to sound like he's tough. He's like 22. He can just go buy it. Seriously. Huh. They make that shit in gummies now. Go get a lollipop, dude. Like just saying <laughs> <laughs> yes okay i yeah that's pretty much all there is to say about that i think um do you want me to tell you a story i would love a story You may or may not have heard of a fabled woman who was nicknamed the Countess of Monte Cristo in the 1920s. 
because of her outrageous spending? Well, she'd have bought a lot of pot. (laughs) Damn it! (laughs) I will stop anything. (laughs) Okay, um, I'm trying so hard. I'm sorry. I trying so hard. <laughs> um, because I already did it once and it didn't get out of my system. So. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Allow me to introduce you to Mrs. Margaret Smith Wilkinson. All right. So. The story of Mrs. Smith Wilkinson is a wild ride of 1920s excess, and it features a somewhat surprising high society con artist, an obscene number of evening gowns, hotel-related fortunes, and a very young third husband who was possibly, probably, a dressmaker? Yeah. Those are all the elements of a good story. Yeah. It's a pretty good story. Um, so, this person, Mrs. Smith Wilkinson, absolutely did exist. And there are many, many, many contemporary sources within her lifetime where she was interviewed personally, people talked about her. So she isn't just a person of legend, which her story would kind of maybe lead you to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, she did exist. And she was born Margaret Wilkinson in either Warwick, Birmingham or Hansworth, Staffordshire around 1866 to working-class parents who were listed as sword and matchmakers. Uh, Yeah, Hmm. which is weird enough that I kind of wonder if the census records were misread or illegible. um, Because that is... Match that you use to light things or matchmaker, matchmaker, maker. I have no idea. I mean, okay. definitely sword, S W O R D, and m- match, but it, I, there's no real additional detail there. Um, I could not pull up the census records specifically, so I did not look at them myself because I did not want to pay for them. Valid. For one line of, yeah. of looking. But this all seems to be corroborated by multiple sources and also time period sources. So, I don't know. So, in 1890, in her early 20s, she married 46-year-old Frances Dunk. And Frank was a successful man in the hotel trade. And he kept specifically the Victoria Hotel in Station Street, 
which was one of the biggest hotels in Nottingham. And the couple had a son that they named Henry Bishop Dunk, which sounds like a character. It does. Dunk is just kind of an unfortunate last name, I think. Yeah, Frank Dunk. Frank Dunk. That, that, that's the husband. So Frank, from whom it is said that she inherited much of the fortune that she would later spend so lavishly, died in 1906. And after Frank's death, Margaret remained in the hotel business. Um, she was also called Peggy because, because you know, Margaret, Margaret turns into Peggy. Yeah. So things were weird back then, man. Yeah. So uh, Peg here stayed in the hotel business, and then in 1910. She got remarried, and her second husband, Thomas Harold Southern, Southerns, was also in the hotel business. And at this time, she was 45, and he was 29. And that's Get it, Peggy. <laughs> that's not even the most dramatic. Okay. I only say that because husband number three... Uh, really um, just blows that one out of the water. So, sadly, Thomas would also leave Margaret a widow for the second time. Uh, He passed away in 1913. Oof. Yeah. That's young and not very long. Right. And there is no indication that she's a black widow. (laughs) I was going to say... It, it, like, these were all pretty normal deaths, although some, there's an upcoming death that is a bit weird. So if you really wanted to spin some stories, but rumors didn't exist at the time that would indicate anything was wrong. So, and there were actual gossip columns. So I would assume that someone would have said something. Um, so after Thomas died, Margaret took over Chesterfield House, which is a very fancy hotel and bath destination, and it was very, very, it sort of, it looked like a giant mansion, and... It kind of weirdly reminds me of, like, the old Borscht Belt resorts, kind of like in Dirty Dancing. Gotcha. Um, okay. Except, like, the main house, not yeah. the little cabins. But it's as though you went to stay like on someone's estate okay. in their mansion. And so this was a high-end place, so... Peggy's doing all right for herself. Right? She's got like a little monopoly starting to pile up there. Yeah. And I could not find a whole lot of information about how she ended up the proprietress of Chesterfield House. But as she had been, like, she had owned the previous hotels and had inherited them. 
And right. so... And he, but he was in it too, you said. So yeah, like both was... of the previous husbands were in the hotel business. And they seemed to be successful at it. And she also seemed to be a successful businesswoman. Like, she knew what she was doing. And... That's pretty amazing for that time period. Yeah. There's a pamphlet from the Chesterfield house that I believe she wrote corrections on um, (laughs) that was scanned. And so you can see like her handwriting and she was sending it off to get newer versions of the pamphlet rewritten in 1917 and so at this point it was her as the I believe the title that she had was managing director but she she owned the place and her son from her first marriage Henry died in Chesterfield House in 1919 at the age of 23 Oh, man. This is where it gets weird. So, or weirder. Um, He had tuberculosis, which Mm. was not terribly uncommon, but that's not what killed him, at least not directly. He was having a breathing fit, and there was a sanatorium built onto the top of Chesterfield House for him. And so he went up to get fresh air Mm -hmm. and as he was using the window to breathe he leaned against a balustrade and fell and when he fell he fell through a glass roof below him oh like you see in all the movies yeah wow yeah so that poor woman yeah so he died (laughs) I'm still side-eyeing her on that, I would say. mm, Yes. I I have no idea. (laughs) Moving along, she married for a third time in 1920, this time to Henry Edward Smith, who changed his surname to Smith Wilkinson before their marriage. Because she... Apparently, he was quoted as saying that uh, it wasn't a fancy enough name. Like, Smith didn't stand out enough. So she insisted upon hyphenating her maiden name and her married name and insisted upon him changing his name to it. Peggy's kind of a boss-ass bitch. Yeah, that was apparently (laughs) fine with him. And he... Was in his early 20s at the time. I believe he was 23 or 24 when she died. So, spoiler alert, she's going to die. But she, at this time, was at least 54. Damn. Yeah. And he's hot. Like, surprisingly so. Or at least I, I wasn't expecting that to be the case. And I'm going to drop this in the chat, or not in the chat, into the document for you to see. I mean, uh, she she was worth a lot. 
There we go. Depending on his character as a human being, I mean. Uh, he seemed to have just gotten the short end of the stick mm. on, on much of this. But, yeah, she, she was not a fetching woman. So her husband was like a tall, dapper looking, exactly what you would expect from 1920s dude. And she was just normal looking. And she had glasses and oh, she was much shorter honey, than him. She looks almost like his grandma. Like, yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Well, I mean, she could have been. That's, that's true. That's <laughs> at me. the time. But oh, yeah. Peggy, I guess. So she's like short and she's got big boobs and big hips and is just deeply normal looking. She looks you, very Midwest. She does. She looks very <laughs> Midwestern. And she just looks she looks unremarkable. Like right. you wouldn't yeah. see her and have any opinion yeah. unless you had context there is zero striking about her like yeah i mean she would she, blend she in just looks like a normal yeah. lady and i mean he's good looking he's he is he's and a tall drink of water yeah nice and, head of hair you know yeah he's got good hair he's got mm-hmm. nice pale eyes like he's good looking um and yeah so i i have no idea how this happened although she did give an interview and i am trying to unearth it because i there are just so many things is he like a friend of her kids (laughs) no we met at my son's funeral you know oh my goodness um they did not meet at the son's funeral but in an interview that she gave that was called the Countess of Monte Cristo for the Sunday Post, which was written by, quote, Our Lady Special Commissioner, who doesn't have a name, it would seem. Um, But whatever. (laughs) So she said, quote, I lost my boy two years ago, and I am certain I would have died of grief but for Mr. Smith Wilkinson. He took over all my arrangements for me and was very kind. And then I made him my private secretary. And there, mm -hmm, (laughs) our little romance started. We both got very fond of each other. And although he is younger, we married and are extremely happy. We are always together, never apart. During the war, He was in the Grenadier Guards. So. I I don't think that's true. I mean, he was in the war, and that is Mm -hmm. true, because he was later arrested for public drunkenness very (laughs) shortly thereafter. Um, And the judge was... The judge heard evidence from people who knew him being like, he was in the war! It happens. And the judge was like, he seems sorry. (laughs) And the case was dismissed. Just don't do it again. Yeah. And so. So She was 
kind of skeevy. She was something, all right. I mean, she she literally had a position of power. She was, and while he was technically legal, I mean, that's a huge age. I, it's kind of creepy. It's a lot. It's a lot. Right about this time, when she is newly married to Mr. Smith Wilkinson, she decides to join society in a big, big way. Okay. And a lot of newspapers picked up this same wire, but this is from a United States newspaper. So, like, she was talked about She made it across the pond. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think this is, um... Maybe the University of Minnesota. But the headline is, It Made Even Parisians Gasp. Extravagant costume worn by Mrs. Wilkinson of England. Quote, temperance queen who never wears the same gown twice gives the French a sensation. Mm. Paris. No longer afraid of being called profiteers, the owner of war millions are now bringing them out for the grand season. The result is that Paris is witnessing a carnival of flamboyant extravagance unequaled, according to many critics, since the days of Nero. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Wilkinson, English temperance queen, who for three weeks has made... Paris, uh, fall back and gasp, appeared at the pre-Catalan restaurant one Saturday night with her third husband, who was 24 years old, wearing on her head a genuine crown composed of more than a thousand pearls and rhinestones. The crown was formerly worn by the Grand Duchess Xenia of Russia. Mrs. Wilkinson bought the trifle, for $800,000. Damn. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, suspended beneath her chin was a cluster of the famous er, of the famous Shrewsbury pearls, more the than Shrewsbury. 300 years old. Mhm. They were bought by Mrs. Wilkinson from the English Museum so she could wear them in Paris. Her dress was interwoven with more than 800 genuine diamonds and her gown being, or, and other gems being set in her stockings and shoes. Altogether, Mrs. Wilkinson estimated her costume to be worth in the neighborhood of $1,500,000. Do you want to know how much 800000 is worth now? Yeah. Ten million nine hundred twenty thousand one hundred and twenty. That's bananas. Yeah, I. Th- the thing about these numbers is that they are all different in every report. Uh, so it's. I, I'm also having a really difficult time connecting all of that to that woman this it was 
Like, it was she would just really look incredibly her, awkward in it. And she really did do these things. Um, so, apparently she is quoted as having said, French women have been the style setters long enough. I made up my mind I would show them what real sensations meant. I have a different gown for every day in the year. I never wear one twice. Okay. okay. So, following this, there are articles titled The Woman with a Thousand Gowns. And sometimes that number is 3,000. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. how old the Shrewsbury Pearls are are 800 years, not 300. Um, which I think is probably just because some. Because 800 and 300 look really similar printed. Right. And that... It's easy to... That it was easy to screw up. But um, the Shrewsbury Pearls didn't exist is the thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, the she wore pearls. It just... She just didn't... made up some Shrewsbury Pearls? Yeah. I mean, everybody likes a good story, <clears throat> so... Yeah, so she definitely specifically entered society to make a story. So with her husband in tow, after just having been married in 1921, they occupied the royal suite at the Claridge Hotel in Paris and dove headfirst into Parisian society. And... It would seem, according to many sources, that Peggy had spent a sum between $200,000 to $750,000. And so that is where she was promptly dubbed Mrs. Monte Cristo. Right. And a... An author and journalist at the time, Basil Woon, commented that it's no easy thing to spend $750,000 in three weeks. No, no, it's not. No, and this didn't include the things, the fine things that she had brought from London. So immediately upon arriving at Claridge's, she had her entire suite redecorated, even though she was only staying for a few weeks. Okay. Yeah. And there are also rumors that she hired five limousines with different colored upholstery so that her car would always match what she was wearing, um, and that she ordered hundreds of gowns from the most expensive dressmakers on the Rue de la Pla. A de la pa, um, to match the limos and that she wore a bunch of jewelry that she brought from London. I am both confused and yep. intrigued. One report claimed that Peggy had spent at least 16,000 pounds on hats, 32,000 in gowns, and 100,000 in loose diamonds. Now, the problem 
with all of these things is that yes they were in fact reported at the time but I can't find any corroborating evidence of the limos hmm. um, it is true that she bought just an obscene amount of gowns and that she bought them from some of the biggest fashion houses that existed. But the amount, the number of gowns and what she spent that was reported don't actually match the figures on the books for those fashion houses. So. Also, yes. I... I, I'm wondering how off the rack she could really buy. Oh, she and wasn't buying off the rack. They were making her clothes for her. Like, they would have to, like, make them from scratch. Because there's only so much inseams you can take out. Oh, no. I mean, made to, or ready to wear didn't exist. These no are... No, these are fashion houses that made made to measure all the time. These are mantua makers. So, like, these were, like, house of worth. Oof, I like, these poor bastards got paid. Uh, well, it doesn't <laughs> seem that they didn't. Okay. So, um, anyway, there's there's no argument that about whether or not she spent a bunch of money and whether or not she stayed in suites in Paris. Like, all of that definitely happened. But there's a lot of questionable numbers and questionable provenance for a lot of the things that... Which seems to... To track. I mean, it's that whole game of telephone. Yeah. And I mean, she just appeared out of nowhere in society. And I guess this was probably one of the last times that maybe you could do that because it was just after the war, um, World War One, and Mm -hmm. not, I don't imagine that everyone knew who had died and who had inherited. Yeah. And. I mean, she had money and she splashed it. Yeah, so, I mean, ultimately, if you have enough money, that'll get you yeah. whatever place in society you pretty much yeah. want. And so there are images of her at balls. There are images of her. Well, I guess I only found a couple of actual photographs. I'm going to have to look at those because I cannot, I cannot picture that woman. Uh, yeah, well, like, there are Paris level gussied well it, it it's dramatic i i must say it's so confusing to equate yeah it it really is um she is said to have claimed to never wear a dress twice she definitely did purchase items at the fashion houses of the time 
But there is also an interesting rumor that I could neither confirm nor deny, but it comes up in several places, that her newly married husband was an aspiring dressmaker and that he returned to London from Paris to design and supervise the construction of the gowns. Okay. So it was like a like a research trip perhaps for her to I think but she didn't leave Paris. So she was still oh, there. Okay. And I I am unclear. And one sort of assumes that he wanted to make a big splash for himself mm-hmm. by being unveiled as the designer of these gowns. I- I'm not really sure. But in the summer of 1921, he apparently arrived from London by plane and brought gowns that were made to match Peggy's and they were on mannequins and all of the gowns were in black and white and there's an actual photo of Peggy in this particular dress let me send it to you that's a little weird can you imagine just land in your plane and you got a bunch of mannequins and dresses (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, civilian air travel wasn't normal, so I don't know. Um, All right, I'm going to drop it in the dock so you can see it. I would totally wear this dress, and all of this will be in the show notes for those of you playing along at home. Mm -hmm. It is, like, there are a lot of gray areas at this point, but... That is so my fair lady. Isn't it? I and love it. She looks it's cool. awkward as fuck in it, but I want it. Yeah, I would wear the hell out of that. Yeah. Um, so this is a description, and this is from the website Jazz Age Club. Mm-hmm. And it says, quote, Peggy's gown was white with huge black stripes, and she looked like a zebra. She wore a black hat with an immense ostrich feather. Mm. Her gloves were white with black fingers, and one of her stockings was black, the other white. Her shoes were studded with diamonds, and she also had a necklace of black and white pearls. In one hand, she carried an enormous six-foot sunshade, and in another, a black and white poodle that had been especially dyed for the occasion. Where had a poodle at? I don't know. That... I, was I like how the well. stripes vary in, like, when they're around the waist. Yeah, me too. It's, it, it gives the illusion of a smaller waist then. Yeah, it like really a, gives shape. Right. It's a mm-hmm. really, it's a, well, I think I'd pick a different hat. And her poor feet look like those shoes were not right for her. But I agree. Other than that, I'm loving it. Yeah, I, I liked it too. Um Apparently, she caused a sensation, but not a good one, in Mm. this particular 
adventure in dressmaking. And the French women apparently were like, oh no, the foreigners will think this is French. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But apparently it didn't really matter that the French thought it was dumb because she would later uh, become known as, quote, the best dressed woman in the world. And... Okay. Because of the press coverage on that night, interesting things happened, like more tabloid gossip, but also someone tried to rob the hotel and went to the wrong room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it, like, all of this is just a very, very strange combination of things. It really is. And so in July of 1921, the New York Times weighs in. And the headline is, Denies She Has Gold Tubs. And Mrs. Smith Wilkinson says, Other stories are exaggerated. London, July 19th. Mrs. Smith Wilkinson, stories of whose spending of millions for luxuries have appeared in the press, has written to thank the Nottingham Guardian for, quote, not having published the exaggerated accounts which appeared in other papers in reference to myself. For instance, I am credited with having paid a fabulous price for a jeweled headdress. It is true that I bought one from a lady who was compelled to sell. She told me her story and how very much money was wanted, and as I had just returned from the races, having won, I felt that it would be charity to do so. But at the same time, I have mentioned to no one the price I gave. Also, it is stated that I possess two golden tubs. This is too silly for words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, righty then. (laughs) Yes, so I'm going to go ahead and assume she has one golden tub. (laughs) Because, yeah, because she didn't totally deny it, but uh, yeah, yeah. So there, there's just a lot going on, and then a lot that is eventually debunked. Um, at one point, her husband. Uh, started advertising for a job. Like, he needed one. Uh, Oh, okay. Because his wife did not give him any money. And so he actually needed to get a job and go to work, despite the fact that he was married to this apparently fabulously wealthy woman. So that's kind of interesting. She was pretty mad about him oh. advertising in the paper. Where did he get that. the money to advertise it if he needed a job? I mean, in the classifieds. Oh, I suppose. I mean, where everybody does that. Um, yeah, so it is... 
it is all very strange. The in the whole Daily Mail on Saturday, the twentieth of January of nineteen twenty-three, there's a headline that says "Married Life Intolerable: Wealthy oh. Woman's Husband Looking for Work." Mr. Smith Wilkinson, the penniless husband of a wealthy wife who some time ago gained some notoriety as, quote, the best-dressed woman in the world, went to Liverpool on Friday from Matlock, where he had been staying for some time, since his wife sailed for South Africa, leaving him behind with only his money pension of eight, I'm going to go with eight pence, a week. Uh, the husband announced that he is anxious to secure work. It was on this quest that he went to Liverpool. A position has been offered to him as a dance master at the Assembly Rooms, New Brighton. He is stated to be an expert dancer and a dress designer, of which he has had experience in Paris. He is 28 years of age, and his wife is understood to be nearly twice his age. In the course of an interview on Friday, Mr. Smith Wilkinson said his life had become intolerable on account of his wife's obsession for clothes, the bungalow in which they lived being filled with hundreds of garments of the costliest description. Well, she spent thousands on dresses, she had little to spare for life's necessities. In order that rooms could be utilized for the storage of clothes, he had had to sleep on the kitchen floor. He summed up his married life as, quote, intolerable. He also stated that his wife is in possession of ample means and that the content of the bungalow would fetch uh, 50,000 pounds. So why didn't he sell off some of the garments? I'm sure she wouldn't notice, and if she doesn't wear them again... He, I imagine he's afraid of her. I don't know. <laughs> he's like the other two died. Like I don't. <laughs> he's not wrong. I don't. Um. So yeah, it is. It's a very weird situation. It really is. And there is an entire, as I said earlier, feature post where she walks a female correspondent of the Sunday Post through all of her collections and her wardrobes that hold hundreds of dresses and there's a description of the inside of the bungalow and it is described as quote an Aladdin's cave of um, treasures and it's very intense and there's also a, an extremely flattering, I think, drawing. I don't think it's a photograph um, of her. Okay. And I will link to that also in the show notes. Um, but it is on the British newpa uh, newspaper archive. So okay. I'm not sure if uh, a membership will be required. I think you might get a couple freebies. But... Just a heads up there. So that that is what's happening there. And 
this seems to continue, but not for very long. She builds up this reputation incredibly, incredibly quickly. And sensing an Icarus situation going on here. There, there's a little, um, a little something to be said. One of my favorite news articles from the time was written by John Bull. And it is the shadiest thing I have <laughs> ever read. Like, holy shit. <clears throat> it is the 26th of November, 1921, to Mrs. Smith Wilkinson, Ritz Hotel, London. Dear Madam, I see it announced that you are back at the Ritz with more than 20 trunks containing costumes of all descriptions, most of which, presumably, you will don during your stay to give your fellow visitors a treat. I trust you will take care to not catch a chill when changing on cold days, for it is shocking to contemplate what a loss you would be to the costumers of London and Paris. May I conclude by reminding you of the approach of Christmas and by drawing your attention to my The Greatest of Thee Fund, which gladly welcomes parcels of cast-off raiment. Er, raiment? Raiment? I don't know. I don't think that word is correctly typed. Um, for distribution amongst the less fortunate. Only please pick out those that don't shout the whole length of Piccadilly. <laughs> oh! Yeah. So that's... That's delightful little shade. Some amazing shade there right there. <laughs> it's my favorite. Favorite shade. I can see that. Yeah. And this would carry on until it came to a screeching halt in December of 1924. So, you know, a month later. <laughs> Christmas time. Yeah. A headline in the Warwick and Warwickshire Advertiser says... A secret funeral. Oh. At Nottingham on Saturday, the remains of Mrs. Smith Wilkinson, described as, quote, the best-dressed woman in the world, were buried in a vault where two of her husbands are interred. The utmost secrecy was maintained, and scores at the graveside did not know the identity of the dead person. Oh, wow. I... Am somewhat unclear why we want to not know the identity of the dead person, but whatever. And if you were wondering, well, did her husband fare better once she was no longer with us? Did he finally... Did he get to sleep in a bed? <laughs> yeah, did he get to sleep in a bed? Well... Your answer would be no. Oh. So, 
In the Sheffield Daily Telegraph, on the 5th of July, 1926, I guess it took this long to start working its way through the courts. Um, oh no, I changed the page. All right. Um, husband and his late wife's estate. The solicitors for Mr. Edward Henry Smith Wilkinson have served a writ on the executors in Nottingham of his late wife, Mrs. Margaret Smith Wilkinson, who died last year in a London nursing home aged 60 years. Oh. Yeah, it seems that she died following a surgery or a long illness. Okay. Both of those things could be true. I don't know. Um, Mr. Smith Wilkinson, seen by a representative at Matlock, confirmed the service of the writ. The claim totals just over 1,000 pounds. Included in the claim are jewelry, etc., of his own presence given him before marriage by the deceased lady, including a gent's gold watch valued at 60 pounds, and goods bought and given to the widower, who is 27 years of age. So, 27, apparently, not... I thought he was younger than that, but... He's still a baby. Oh, he is, and I mean, he's a a widower at this point, so... Uh, He was the third husband of Mrs. Smith Wilkinson. Included in the claim is a half share of £1,000 paid for a specially taken film entitled Peeps into the Lives of Mr. and Mrs. Smith Wilkinson. Which actually was a film that was made, although I couldn't find anything more about it. Oh, I want to see yeah. it now. Me too. The deceased lady who created a sensation in London and Paris as the best-dressed woman in the world died worth 17,000 pounds and left nothing to her husband. Oh, Mr. shit. Smith Wilkinson has been granted permission by the Poor Persons Department of the High Court to sue Informa Pauperis. Oh, Informa Pauperis. That's a term I had never heard before, but that makes sense. Um, Because he does not have a two pound per week income. Mr. Smith Wilkinson at present is in casual employment as a guide at the Great Mason Tavern on heights of Mason and spends most days underground, explaining to visitors the wonders of the cavern. He laughingly told our representative that the best description of his profession at the moment was that of a caveman. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it just keeps going. And the the most frequent amount that has been given to her estate that I've seen is 17,000 pounds. But there are also articles in which her husband is quoted saying that she was worth 60,000 pounds. And this is, of course, 60,000 pounds in the uh, 1920s. So that's a, that's a lot of money. Um, right? Yeah, so that, 
it turns out that after she passed and the sale of her jewelry was happening, that it was found that many of the things were not real or her uh, widowed husband informed people of how much the things really cost and where they came from and it was not where she said they did oh i mean it's kind of smart i guess yeah even specifically the shrewsbury pearls which were not so Um, seventeen thousand, just seventeen thousand is 262,206 dollars and 27 cents yep that's that's a big that's a decent chunk of change though yeah, and that was just, like, what she had on hand. Oh, yeah. Um, in the weekly dispatch of London on the 15th of March, 1925, that is when her husband claims that her estate is worth 60,000 pounds and that there were three wills. Oh. Yes. Um <laughs> I believe, or quote, I believe my wife died worth about 60,000 pounds, and I now learn that she made three different wills within five years since I married her. I feel sure one of them was entirely in my favor, he said. (laughs) At least one of them. She wrote that will suddenly after our marriage in a Sheffield garage when we were motoring together. (laughs) (laughs) Like you do. (laughs) Yes. Mr. Smith Wilkinson's name was originally Smith, but Wilkinson was added because he said today Smith was too common for my wife. Um, yeah, all right. So now in 1927, in the Dundee Evening Telegraph, there is an article that says judge refuses to try case widower's claims upon wife's effects Uh, memories of a woman who a few years ago attracted worldwide attention she was called the best dressed woman in the world were revived at nottingham assizes i don't know what that word means oh i just can't read it because it's an old newspaper Mm. sorry the It zooms in when I scroll, which does not make it easy to read. All right. Um, Edward Henry Smith Wilkinson of Matlock Dale brought a claim against the executors, or executors, not executors, (laughs) although that would be funny. Although, yeah. Yes. Of his late wife, Mrs. Smith Wilkinson, in respect of certain articles under her will. The original claim exceeded £1,000 and included $500 as a share of a $1,000 film, especially taken giving incidents in Mrs. Smith Wilkinson's life. This, however, was dropped. The defendants were Mr. H. J. Spencer and J. Pollard and J. Leeton of Nottingham and Mr. Ackerman of Birmingham. The actual values of the articles claimed was three hundred and sixteen pounds fourteen cents, 
When the jury was sworn in, Mr. Justice Sherman refused to try the action, pointing out that it was largely a matter of detail and of identifying various articles. He suggested that it should go through the registrar of the county court. There was a lengthy consultation between the judge and counsel for the parties, and ultimately his lordship referred the action to the official referee or to anyone else on whom parties could agree. <laughs> yes. Um, He's like, I don't got time yeah. for this. <laughs> In a brief opening statement, Mr. G. Smallwood, plaintiff's counsel, said that Mr. Smith Wilkinson was or Mrs. Smith Wilkinson was extravagant and fond of uh, ornamentation quite beyond any ordinary mind. She was one of those women, said counsel, who appeared prominently just after the war. It might seem curious that she should have showered jewelry on her husband, but it was not curious, for it was all in keeping with her character. So... He was basically suing for jewelry, and she was also known to have gifted jewelry to, like, dancing masters and people who worked for her, or anybody else. (laughs) Personal assistants. (laughs) Um, So, yes, I'm trying to, I'm now trying to chase down why or who actually got the money um it's also weird because i mean i'm guessing maybe part of the assets would have been sold off to pay for the nursing home care and the funeral and things like that but obviously she had sold off her hotels um yeah and she sold her her home and her bungalow Like, all of this happened before she went into the nursing home. And that is also a little bit unclear why all of that happened. I'm guessing that she was running out of money. Right. If you combine that with her going in for surgery, I could see her anticipating and prepping for perhaps not coming out of it as hoped. It's all very weird. Like, just little details, like the secretive funeral and the fact that nothing was left to the husband. and Like, just all these little things. And then, and then you look at her and you're like, really? I would not have guessed that you were this complex of a human being. Yeah. Um, so in early December of 1924, Peggy was in London and she had sold all of her possessions in Nottingham and following an operation apparently, died in St. Thomas's nursing home. Okay. It was claimed that she was 49 years old. She was, in fact, at least a decade older. And afterwards, it's not actually known what happened to Edward. Oh. Um, so that's, that's fun. Uh, and I still cannot find who she actually left the stuff too let's wrap it up with (laughs) with one last uh quote to send off mrs smith wilkinson 
From the Dundee Courier, Monday, 16th of March, 1925. Hmm, March 16th is my high school boyfriend's birthday. <laughs> All right. Husband left out of best-dressed woman's will. Society career recalled. Spent 30,000 pounds on clothes in a year. <clears throat> the romantic story of Mrs. Smith Wilkinson, who claimed to be the best-dressed woman in the world and who died at St. Thomas's Nursing Home, London, last December, is revived, oh, I hope not, um, <laughs> by the announcement that her husband is not a beneficiary under her will. Mrs. Smith Wilkinson was 60 years old at the time of her death and her husband 28. He stated in an interview at Matlock on Saturday that during their five years married life, his wife made three wills, one of which left her whole estate to him. He added that he believed his wife left 40,000 pounds and that he had engaged solicitors to deal with his claims. During her meteoric career in London, Mrs. Mrs. Smith Wilkinson startled society with her extravagant, extravagant expenditure, her wonderful wardrobe, and an amazing collection of jewels. In America, they called her quote, the Countess of Monte Cristo, and said that she bathed in a gold tub and that her teeth were stopped with real diamonds. <laughs> when she went to Paris, her lavish expenditure on the latest creations aroused intense excitement, and the races at Autriel were actually held up by the crowd that followed her and her retinue of mannequins across the famous <laughs> course. Um, so that happened. Married three times, her third husband was a young Matlock man who, at her request, changed his name by deed poll to Smith Wilkinson. Mr. Smith Wilkinson later declared that in less than 12 months, his wife spent 30,000 pounds on clothes in London and in Paris, and that he scrubbed the floors, cooked the meals, and worked in the garden, receiving from his wife eight uh, cents a week. So, that is a thing. And um, the floors and such that he scrubbed were of a public house that they owned. Ah, okay. Um, and where I think they lived at the tail end. Or possibly at the very beginning. It's a little unclear, as with literally everything. I was going to say. <laughs> yep. And I am sorry to say that I still don't know who got the money. But I don't think it was very much money, so. Right? Whatever. Wow. Yes. Um, oh, gosh, I talked forever. Sorry. Don't be sorry. It's a good story. There were just so many articles. Right. What a... I'm going to say fascinating lady. Yeah. Like, I bookmarked 28 separate articles <laughs> uh, in different newspapers. Wow. 
Yeah. So if you gave us a listen last episode, you will have heard me cover the origin of spinsters and do a quick little rundown on some of my faves, both in literature and in real life. So this time I'm diving headfirst into my love of Miss Havisham and talking about one of the alleged inspirations for her character. While it's suspected that Dickens might have had multiple in, like inspirations for Miss Havisham, there's two women that are most credited to being his creepy little muse. Um, initially, I started looking at Eliza Emily Donnenthorne, and then I found that there was another named Jane Lucen. And hmm. um, so I was like, okay. So then I started going down both holes at the same time, and I was like, I will cover both, and... Then I just realized that I couldn't half-ass this, so I picked my favorite of the two. And today, I would like to introduce you to Lady Jane Lucen. Ooh. So, for those of you who have never been forced to read Great Expectations, or who read it and then instantly forgot about it. Or who uh, listened to Alanis Morissette. <laughs> right. And wondered I, uh, what that was all about. Exactly. Uh I'm going to just do uh, a little a little brief as to who Miss Havisham in literary form was. Yes, please. So, Miss Havisham is what some may say bitter. Uh, <laughs> she's definitely a recluse who shot herself in her mini mansion after being jilted on her wedding day. Not only does she never leave the house, like part of her never really leaves the day that she was jilted. She stopped all the clocks at 20 minutes to 9, which was the exact time that she received the letter calling off the wedding. She received it on the morning of. Um, Oh, yeah, because it would be wedding breakfasts at that time. Exactly. Oh, geez. That wedding must have been at 9. Right? Uh, So many theorize that this is so that she's unaware of time passing. Uh, which is a bit kooky, yep. But uh, then she takes it to like a whole other level by continuously wearing her wedding clothes and leaving the prepared wedding feast to decay in the room that it was set. Yeah, I've thought a lot about this over the years. Yep. So, from the book. I crossed the staircase landing and entered the room she indicated. From that room, too, the daylight was completely excluded, and it was airless smell that was oppressive. A fire had been lately kindled in the damp, old-fashioned grate, and it was more disposed to go out than turn up, and the reluctant smoke which hung in the room seemed colder than the clearer air, like in our own marsh mist. Certain wintry branches of candles on the high chimney piece faintly lit the chamber, or it would be more expressive to say faintly troubled its darkness. It was spacious, and dare I say, had once been handsome, but everything disconcernable thing that it was covered in dust and mold and dropping to pieces. The most, oh prom- <laughs> the most prominent object was a long table with a tablecloth spread on it, as if a feast had been in preparation when the house and the clocks all stopped together. An apern or centerpiece of some kind was in the middle of this cloth. It was so overly hung with cobwebs that its form was quite undistinguishable, and as I looked along the yellow expanse, 
out of which I remember see it's seeming to grow like a black fungus. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, <laughs> I just remembered your arachnophobia. Perhaps I should cut it here and not no, continue. No, it's to fine. Read. I already know where it's going. Okay. I've read this book many times. I figured as such, but I didn't want to trigger anything. Nah, it's all right. I saw speckle-legged spiders with blotchy bodies running home from it and running out from it, as if some circumstances of the greatest public importance had just transpired in the spider community. (laughs) I love that line. I heard the mice, too, rattling behind the panels, as if some occurrence were important to their interests. But the black beetles took no notice of the agitation and groped about the hearth in a ponderously elderly way, as if they were short-sighted and hard of hearing and not on terms with one another. <laughs> These crawling things had fascinated my attention, and I was watching them from a distance when Miss Havisham laid a hand upon my shoulder. In her other hand, she had a crutched head stick on which she leaned, and she looked like the witch of the place. Now, as a result of her experiences, Miss Havisham's not really a fan of, hum- of humanity in general, but particularly no. men. Um, she is definitely scorned. Uh, so she adopts a young girl, Estella, and is training her to be cold and cruel so that she'll go forth and break men's hearts as her heart has been broken. Yes, because she's hot. Yeah, she is. Uh, she then invites the young Pip to the house so that Estella has a little plaything to practice on. Oh, Pip. Poor Pip. Uh, although she eventually regrets what she has done and her character starts to change, Miss Havisham has an ending that's as tragic as her life. Yes. Um, random and awkwardly placed side note here, because uh, I didn't know where else to kind of stick it in, but there is a link in the show notes to a recipe for Miss Havisham's bride cake, and that page also has like a delightful free Hobbit-themed cookbook, and I'm pretty <laughs> much obsessed overall with the site. The woman behind it does literary themed dinners and it's marvelous so definitely check it out also it involves fruitcake and almond paste very interesting so there really is more to miss marzipan i right i love marzipan uh but i'm I'm hungry again So I'm going to leave you to dive into Miss Havisham herself on your own. And I've put a link to a copy of uh, Great, Great Expectations, Expectations. In, the show, yeah, in the show notes as it's part of the Gutenberg project now. So oh, it's super easy cool. to, yeah. So it's there for you. You all to take a trip down memory lane or, you know, read more about, you know, the spiders and mice and beetles. So how does oh my. Lady... <laughs> right. So how does Lady Jane Lucen fit into this? Now, it is clear that Lady Lucen's life has morphed into its own folklore, and there's much like uh, Miss Countess uh, of Monte Cristo. There's like varying accounts out there. Um, so we're gonna begin with the facts that have been established. Jane Lucen was born Jane Vaughn. Uh, she claimed to be born in 1700 on Essex Street, the Strand, in London. There is literally zero documentation on when this woman was actually born. Uh, Uh, I mean, parish registries burned pretty frequently. Mm Mm-hmm. She died on the 28th of May, 1816. Wow. At her home at number 12 Coldbath Square, Clarkenwell, 
at the age of 116. Yeah. Hot damn. Hundred and friggin' sixteen. Now, Lady Lucen was born into a rather wealthy family, um, but was not an actual lady in title. That's a nickname we'll get to later. So, sure. now, unlike Miss Havisham, she did actually marry a gentleman who was also wealthy. He tragically died when she was twenty-six, leaving her to raise a daughter alone. Now, hmm. there is. Uh, one person who was pulling records that found somebody who might have been this same person who had three children. Um, but the children aren't even part of this, really. Um, so even these small facts that we have are actually kind of disputed here and there. But according to, <laughs> according to the 1846 book, The History and Antiquities of the County of Suffolk, by Alfred Inigo, Jane Vaughn, according to her burial at Bunhill Fields, was buried as Jane Lucen, not Lucen, and was aged 96, not 116, oh, okay. making her birth closer to 1720 rather than 1700. It's also believed that her husband had previously been married in Great Yarmouth, but his wife, Hepzibah, died. And I'm only wow. putting that in there because I really like the name Hepzibah. So that's only why it's in there, because I just think it's a really fun name. Uh, the truth is, the accuracy of these details aren't really necessary for our story, whether she was 116, 117, 96. It's still really fucking impressive for the day. Um, but what is important are the correlations to Miss Havisham. So it all began when her daughter married and moved away, uh, leaving Lady Lucent alone in her mansion in Clarkenwell. It began slowly. As things do, she stopped having visitors over, though she still had her servants change the sheets in the numerous guest bedrooms every single morning for like 50 years. She's, <laughs> yeah, she's, uh, trips outside the mansion grew infrequent, but when she did go out, people noticed. I bet they did. <laughs> they did, because her fashion sensibilities were hard to miss. They did not stray from the time during which George the First reigned. So like 1714 to 1727. She wore a large tete de mouton made of horsehair. It's pretty much just a wig. Uh, on her I, head. Yes, but I don't think I've ever heard it pronounced. <laughs> yes, well, I'm on 90 days of Duolingo French, so I slide that shit in when I can. I appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, nearly a half foot high over which her hair was turned up, a cap over it which nodded under her chin, and three or four curls hanging down her neck. She oh, always, she's Marie Antoinetting it. She pretty much is. She always wore powder. Her body was generally adorned in silk gowns with a long train that had a deep flounce all around, very long waist, very tightly laced up to her neck, around which was kind of a ruffle or a frill. The sleeves of her gown came below the elbow, a large straw bonnet, high-heeled shoes, and a large black silk cloak trimmed with lace. And she wow. carried with her a gold-headed cane, and that completed her costume for roughly 80 friggin' years. I hope she didn't wear paneers. <laughs> so, I mean, wrong time period, I think. but <laughs> I think so. Uh, so as the years passed... 
every time she went out, she began to resemble like some kind of time traveling curiosity from like a completely different era. This, in fact, along with the manner that she actually dressed herself, is what earned her the moniker Lady Lucin. Uh, she well, seemed fair enough. <laughs> so archaic, but grand in this city that was like rapidly modernizing. And I'm pretty much here for it all. Like, just. I want to be friends with her. I really do. Honest, honest. Seriously, I am being like, quite serious. I am. I'm. I'm a bit in love with her. Um, because I think she's amazing. So. Yeah. As strange as her clothing may seem, the interior of the house started to become even stranger. And you can see the resemblance to Miss Havisham kind of rapidly forming now. Mm-hmm. The strangeness that had begun to spiral seems clearly linked to either a paranoia of death or like just being deeply stubborn and refusing to give death an option to take her without a fight. Uh, not even necessarily her death alone, but like death in general. Okay. So I should note here that there's actually two schools of thoughts on this. I personally believe the death route. The other is that she hated cleaning and that extended to herself and her house. Given, even just given the fact that she did dress so extravagantly when she did leave the house. Well, she had bedclothes changed every day. Right. I mean, there's there's stuff in there that just doesn't add up from, yeah. So I'm going with the, the death route. So either way, she became more and more eccentric as time passed, which, you know, tracks. As her daughter left, she retained only one of the group of servants that had been there and it was an older woman and after that lady passed on an old man who looked after several houses in the square and would like go on errands for her clean her shoes stuff like that was eventually taken in as her steward butler cook and housemaid and then with the exception of two old lap dogs and a cat he was her only companion um hmm. the house was large elegantly furnished but really run down um she allowed absolutely nothing besides the bedding to be changed, moved, thrown out, washed, or cleaned. The rooms grew duskier as, like, the dust settled on the tables, chairs, picture frames, even mirrors. The walls themselves began to actually be tinted by dirt. The windows would be eventually so crusted with dirt that they ceased to let any light in. And it was said that her motivation behind the windows was that she feared someone would break one while cleaning and either injure themselves severely or allow germs in. And oh. she did not abide germs. It sounds like she maybe had some agoraphobia or something. Yeah. So uh, this brings us to her, I guess I'm just going to say unusual self-care. Okay. Uh, Jane never washed, as she believed those who did so caught coals. So instead, she smeared herself, like you do, with hog's lard every morning because it was soft and lubricating. What? <laughs> hog's lard that never got washed off, nor did the makeup that she pancaked over the top of it daily believing each of these layers were further protection against disease, she maintained that she had no need for drug or doctors. 
just well apparently she was right right hogs log her immune system powder. must have been amazing seriously Jesus. to further avoid germs she would only drink tea out of her favorite cup believing this cup was the likelihood uh it cut the likelihood rather of her catching a cold and she would only sit in one specific chair so she had her favorite teacup and her favorite chair oh dear as her eccentricity progressed she insisted that nothing be moved so almost like she had this mystical alignment of her possessions and like a macabre feng shui and that was responsible for like her remarkable longevity and health I kind of liken it to, like, when you're in middle school, you're like, if I throw this piece of paper and it makes it in that wastebasket, he totally likes me. Um, wow. Kind of just, like, yeah, she, mm-hmm. Oddly, though, like, whatever she was doing worked. Her overall health was good. <laughs> this is just so messed up. It was said that at the age of 87, where many were lucky to still have any teeth left, she actually cut two new ones, which is just so bizarre. Uh, um, I mean, there is a um, uh, a calcification issue that people can have that ejects calcified chunks from their mouth, so... She got two of them at the age of 87. That's gross. And she barely suffered an hour's illness, though she would begin to lose her sight towards the end, which, dude, you've seen my glasses. <laughs> Lady I, Jane. Fine. <laughs> right. Lady Jane loved her garden, and that was pretty much the only part of her home that was super well-maintained. And she would sit in it and read... Um, all of the time and on rare occasion where she did invite the few acquaintances that she had left alive to visit they would uh take tea with her there they were never allowed in the house uh in the garden they would discuss old times and she was reputed to actually have had an excellent memory and loved relating events from the early 1700s hmm. this woman lived through five reigns and was supposed to be the most faithful historian of her time. Wow. Edith Sitwell, in her book, English Eccentrics, described Lady Lewison as a strange and ancient trumpery, stating her likeness to a cobweb is produced by the fact she wears ruffs and cuffs and farringales of her use. In what seemed a further defiance of the natural order, Lady Lawson, at the age of 87, cut two new teeth, which were a source of pride to her and wonder to her neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> Edith continued, her large house in Cold Bath Square contains only four other beings, ghosts like herself, two lapdogs, an aged cat, and an old man whose occupation had been that of wandering from house to house in the distance, earning pieces of food by running errands and cleaning boots. This man acted as her cook, butler, and by that time, sole servant. As the years went on, many thought our lady immortal. Uh, well. But sadly, on Tuesday, May the 28th in 1816, at what she claimed was the age of 116, 
Lady Lucin lost her battle with death. Hmm. On June 3rd, she was buried in the famous dissenter's graveyard, Bunhill Fields, which contained the remains of Daniel Defoe and William Blank, amongst other luminaries. Huh. Lady Lucin's fame is attested by the fact that obituaries to her appeared in several op- publications, including The Observer, each stressed that she had died at the age of 116 and lived through five, the reigns of five monarchs. Her funeral included a grand hearse pulled by four horses, two other carriages accompanied it containing Mr. Anthony of Clarkenwell, her executor, and a few relations that she always refused to see. <laughs> After her death, a witness recalled visiting the house and was shocked to find the number of bolts and bars fitted to the doors and windows. The ceiling of the upper floors was lined with bars to prevent anyone getting into the property through the ceiling. The cinder ashes had not been removed for many years and were piled up as if to form beds. While Dickens was only four when Lady Jane passed on, I mean, her story's pretty fucking legendary. And everyone knew of it. And there are many differences Particularly in age. Dude, did you know Miss Havisham was only 40? Yes, but I did not remember that until you just said so. Yeah, Dickens was a cheeky fucker. Uh, And the fact that she married and had her own daughter and clearly didn't hate men. So that might be where the other potential inspiration comes in. But I mean, Dickens got paid by the word. That's true. But uh, that, dearies, is uh, a deep dive for, like, another day for the other potential inspirations. Um, But I give to you who I am, like, 90% convinced uh, is the original Miss Havisham. Yeah, I agree. I think that that is almost certainly the case. And I really wish I could have hung out in the garden with Lady Jane Lucent because she seems like a delight, if not quirky, but in a good way. Weird as shit, but probably stinky. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Although, cannot... maybe not. It, if she's never messed up her um, uh, skin biome with anything acidic or um nothing basic. could reach it she was a walking candle <laughs> i don't that's actually a really good point i don't know how she didn't go up in flames like i that's a i mean just lard and powder lard and powder lard and four decades ew like that ew Right? Ew. Yeah. Ew. Indeed. Ew, but also good on you. Like, you know, huh. you fight death. <laughs> like, you do you, Lady right? Jane. She didn't hurt anybody. She wasn't you. mean. No. But, uh, she seemed as... like she needed a little um, mental health support. Yeah. There's, there's clearly some, there's some issues in there. But um, also... There wasn't any available at the time. Right. So. Right, right. And she, I mean, at that point, she would have seen so many people just die and leave. And I mean, wow. 
Yeah. I mean, it doesn't even matter if she lived to be 96 or 116. At that Seriously, time? 96 was like just, I mean, I, I can't yeah. even. That's just. And I mean, the person who lived with her must have just at that point been just living there. Like, right. she couldn't have been paying him, no, I wouldn't no. think. Wow. I mean, she had money, though, so who knows? Oh, that's true. She did have money. Maybe her longevity is where the witchiness of Miss Havisham came in. I mean, the loneliness. Yeah. But she had, you know, she had two dogs and a cat and... Not for 116 years. No, not for that long. (laughs) She wasn't, you know, specifically... So, yeah but yeah that loneliness i'm sure indeed i don't yeah i certainly think that's got to be one of the people it has to be there's just it's just too and it, what cracks me up is that sh- there's not nearly the amount of information written on her as there is about the other person who, and she's at least in England. The other person was born in South Africa and ended up in Australia. So just even knowledge of her getting to Dickens would have been. Hmm. But yeah. Well, I, I mean, Dickens was a reporter. That's true. But yeah, I'm going, I'm going with Lady, Lady Jane. I that's like not it. not where the phrase Lady Jane comes from, though. No, that's, that's a different <laughs> Lady Jane. Well, there Indeed. are several. Um, concerning Lady Jane's throughout history, including <laughs> a beheaded indeed. queen. Yes, um, yes, yes. Indeed. At, she was, what, 18? I don't know. She was yeah, young. Yeah, she was baby. Lady, that was Jane Grey. Grey. Grey, right? Yep. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. And on <sighs> that uplifting note, it actually brings us to... The weekly, the weekly worst, worst way, way to, to die. die. <laughs> By us singing. Uh, oh no. Now it's stuck in my head again. Damn oh, it. No. <laughs> oh, it had gone away. Oh no. Okay, it's fine. Um, what is what is your weekly worst way to die? My weekly worst way to die is accidentally setting myself on fire via fireplace because of my big old rotting wedding dress and or the amount of hard hog lard I've got on me. I am amazed that that is not how that woman died. Right? How is that not how that woman died? I don't know. Like, I cannot fathom. No. Because, I mean, lard is, that's, that's thick. That is thick stuff. Ew. No, it's stinky. Ew. That's not. Yeah. What about you? <laughs> um, literal glass ceilings. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Ugh. Shudder. Yeah. That's, Shudder. That's mine. Oh, man. So, hey. Uh, Want to yeah. be spooky internet friends? Probably. <laughs> we promise to bathe. Uh, <laughs> We're Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, TikTok, 
all of the social medias. Or you can just find us at bonesandbobbins.com. That's cool, too. Also true. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast because it pleases the internet gremlins. And that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls. The, the morbid souls? The morbid souls. <laughs> yes, we want all of them. Stop freaking out about that hog lard powder. <laughs> Do not bring forth. No. The old lady living candles, please. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on that note, mm-hmm. <laughs> let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Yes. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins <laughs> podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.